You're about to join Jerry Parker, Maritz Siebert, and Niels Kostrup-Larsen on their raw and honest journey into the world of systematic investing and learn about the most dependable and consistent yet often overlooked investment strategy. Welcome to the Systematic Investor Podcast Series. Mort Sieben and I, Nils Kostelasen, are back with this week's edition of the Systematic Investor Series, which is our weekly ongoing raw exploration of the world of rules-based investing, and of course, where we also take some of your questions. But today, we're going to deviate a bit from our usual format, because we are delighted to be joined by a very special guest, namely Michael Covell, a true legend in our industry. And I'm sure a lot of you, if not all of you, are already familiar with Mike's podcast and his books. So let me start by saying, welcome to the show, Mike. Great to have you here. Thanks, guys. Thanks for having me. Absolutely. And as usual, uh, good afternoon to you, Moritz. How are things? Hey, Neil's doing fine. Good afternoon, Mike. Nice to have you on. I'm doing fine. Sounds good. Now, we, of course, very much look forward to diving into the world of trend following with Mike and uh, see what you've learned from your many decades of being in the trenches. But before we do that, we normally just do a quick review of the past week from the lens of a trend follower. So while you have an extra sip of maybe your evening drink where you are, we will quickly go through the highlights uh, from last week. Hope that sounds good with you, Mike. Sounds like a plan. I'll take a break. Good. Now, um, Moritz, we obviously want to spend as much time as we can with Mike. So why don't you uh, tell us what happened from yeah. your point of view? Happy to start. And, uh, you know, this time for a change, I'm actually happy to report that I've made some money with my trend following program up a bit more than a, of a percent. Remember, Niels, last week I said, you know, it's been like week after week after week, you know, trading in a narrow range and not really making a lot of money on any of these markets, neither up or down. Everything has been muted. So this past week, this has changed. I've, uh, Made a lot of money from, you know, being longer grains, soybeans, soybean meal, corn above all. And then, of course, you know, you, you need to forgive me, um, Niels, but I need to say that I've made some money, make, you know, being long Bitcoin. So that was great. I thought you did. <laughs> exactly. Bitcoin. And, um, you know, the not that many shorts on. They, they, didn't, they didn't really deteriorate the performance. Not much movement on the equities, lost a bit of money in the bonds, but it wasn't that much, you know, still along the bonds, made a bit of money in the energies, but yada, yada. Long story short, made money. I'm happy about that. I'm still about 5%, 5.5% down for the year. But like I've said last week, you know, it's, uh, we're still two, two, two months until the end of the year. This can change relatively quickly given the 20% fall that I'm trading. Yes, and what's going to happen in about two weeks in the U.S. Uh, anything can anything can happen for sure. On our side, we are obviously very much in tandem with you to a large extent this year. So it was another positive week as well on our side, and it was really down to the the C's, meaning commodities and currencies. In commodities like you, grains were really uh, the leaders, especially the soybean complex, and also live cattle did pretty well. Energies uh, continue to do well, but on the downside, of course, and then in the currency sector, it was mainly the euro and the Swiss franc that stood out. But also, um, we did see uh, the other markets in the currency sector um, produce positive contributions. So that was cool. Equities were small negative, And the biggest challenge really was from the fixed income markets as bonds were pretty much under pressure most of the week. So that was a very short my market wrap so that we can get back to uh, you, Mike. Now, before we dive in, I think it's always interesting since you are on the other side of the world from where we are, just maybe quickly, how are things where you are vis-a-vis -vis what's going on with COVID and all of that? What's the status? I happen to be in Saigon, Vietnam right now, and it's a country of 100 million people. I believe so far there have been 50 five zero deaths, uh, 1,000 cases. I think a lot of those were uh, actually cases brought in by foreigners, probably Western folks. I'm not really sure why that's the case. I mean, I know my home country is the most obese country in the world, and Vietnam is the least obese country in the world. Could have mm -hmm. something to do with it. Not sure. But Beyond a lockdown, and in terms of a lockdown, not really a lockdown here now, but flights restricted. So travel's a little bit tough in and out of the country. But look, if you're in a country that has almost no COVID, why, why risk it? Why run around, right? 
that is very true. That's very true. Yeah, no, it's very different over here, uh, certainly in Europe as well. And every country seems to be locking down uh, one by one. And yeah, it's pretty bad. And travel, as, as you say, over, over where you are, I mean, it's completely restricted as well, uh, even in Europe, I would say. So interesting. But before we get into all of these interesting questions that I'm sure we, uh, we're going to talk about today, I want to start by sharing a story with you, Mike. And I'm not, I think you know the story to some extent, but I'm not sure you know the full background because I seem to remember seeing you tweeting about this. So it might be fun for you to know this. And this is from a friend who works at a firm that both you and I know very well. And he wrote me this um, just last night. And he said, a couple of weeks ago, I answered a call that came into our main telephone line. This was a very nice woman that told me that she was about to retire after serving 30 years as a Border Patrol agent. And her son had been bugging her for months to call us about investing. We spoke for a long time, but she kept referring to her son and how he wouldn't stop pressuring her to call us and to get his uncle to read these two books, which she referred to as The Turtle and The Trend. Her son sounded like a very smart guy, and so I asked if I could, if she could put him on the phone, and I was surprised when she gave me a hard no. I accepted her answer, but asked her to tell him that I think he sounds like a really smart guy, and he could call me anytime if he wants to discuss the books. She then told me why I wouldn't be be able to speak with him, and it was because he's currently in prison. It turns out he was a smart kid, but alcohol was the problem and he did not overcome it before it got the best of him. She said for the last few years, his interest in investing had been what has kept him motivated and there, in there, sorry, kept him motivated in there, and he has read every book related to finance in the prison's library. Apparently, he's not the only one there that has an interest for investing because they formed a group to discuss everything they had been learning. That group determined trend following was the way to go. And the two books that everyone should read are Mike's. I'm sure Mike never thought he would have his own prison fan club, but I think he will love knowing he has what is called here in the States some serious street cred. Did you know this story? Mike? I think I heard bits of the one with the guy, but I actually had a lady text me within the last couple of years, and she said, this is a lady, she had just gotten out of a female prison. Okay. And in that female prison, the Turtle Trader book ruled supreme. And she said people just loved it and talked about it all the time. And then afterwards, I said, well, and she was so nice. She wrote this nice write-up. And I, I said, well, can I send some books to the prison? And so I actually sent a bunch of Turtle Trader books to two different prisons. Sure. Okay, so that's the story I heard from you. That's the one I remember now that you tweeted about or wrote about. So this is a different story. It's relatively new. It's It happened within the last two weeks. And what I love about this story really is, I think it demonstrates that, you know, trend following really is for everyone. Like the turtle story demonstrates and that you really don't have to have any particular degree to learning to learn it and to practice it so um, you know kudos to you mike for putting things out there that people from from all shades of society gravitate to um i think it's a wonderful testament to trend following but also to the way you have made it popular for sure there's a cool aspect to that that i was just thinking about as you talk about it why would something like this resonate in prison. Well, it's kind of like being on a desert island, right? You don't have access to all the other stuff necessarily or in a timely manner. So the folks in prison say, well, what do I have access to? How much time do I get to get this access? And I would I would think that trend following probably has something to do with that because they can't be glued to all the uh, fundamentals all the time, I'm sure. Sure. That, that's definitely true. Now, I don't know what line of questions Morris has prepared today, so we we may be going all over the place. But I do know that we had lots of questions coming in by emails and, and Twitter when we announced last week that you're coming on the show. So I'm sure that'll be fun as well. And I think for my part, I just want to I just want to warn the audience because I will have my own kind of uh, line of questions that I'd like to hear your thoughts about. And and people might think 
when they hear them that I'm not a believer in trend following because I do want to be maybe a little bit the devil's advocate today to hear your views on things, but I just want to warn people that that is uh, not necessarily what I what I believe, but some of the things we get questioned about ourselves every single day. So, Moritz, over to you. Over to me. I mean, as you know, we normally go pretty freestyle, and I think that's good. But maybe staying on the topics of books, Mike, what keeps you busy these days? Any new books in the works? They're all great. I, I have them all in my bookshelf. Of course, I love the latest one, the dark blue one, which is which is a monster of a book. But you know, what keeps you busy? Are you writing these days or what are you doing? I'm working on two books and I'm working on a screenplay. The books are both, at least these two books are both content coming from the podcast because so many people really enjoy the podcast. And I thought, well, how can I take some of this great content? And of course, being inspired by Jack Schwager's books, how can I take some of this great content, put it into book form and let it live on in another way? The first one of those two is actually going to be featured about the trader Tom Basso. And Tom, as people might know, is a retired trend-following trader. But Tom has taken on a second life now on the internet. And he actually is probably one of the main guys. He's been on my podcast five or six times. Probably one of the main guys to help give me credibility early on. And I can see from the listens, I mean, people just love Tom. And so I thought, well, let's do, let's do a book you know, centered around Tom's interviews. And so the name of that book is going to be called Trend Following Mindset with a subtitle that will feature around Tom's name. So that's coming. The other one will probably be more diverse in terms of interviews combined to one book. Will there be another book of all kinds of brand new stuff? Perhaps, perhaps. Tom's fantastic. I enjoyed every single one of his podcasts uh, with you and on other platforms. But, you know, enjoy the ride. This is, I think, his motto. And I think the way he lives in Arizona and it's, you know, just being so even keeled with, you know, the world, the world of trading, the markets, you know, it is it is someone that I think everybody can look up to and learn something from. So I'm a, I'm a big fan of Tom's and uh, can't, can't wait to, you know, to see that book. So you've just mentioned Chick Schwager, by the way. Chick Schwager is coming out with a new Market Wizards book. I think it's going to be released next week, The Unknown Market Wizards. I'll actually have the honor of interviewing him on Real Vision, which will happen next Thursday. So I'm not sure when that's going to air, but I think that's going to be fascinating to hear about all these unsung heroes, unsung trading heroes, and how they're trading in probably such a different style than, you know, Miller and Michael Marcus and all these stars that were portrayed in the earlier market wizard books so something i look forward to yeah he was he was great he was great i actually just interviewed him for that book yeah jack's great one of the i think most gifted writers in that space and maybe we should just intersect more it's that he will be joining us on this little podcast uh in a couple of weeks as well correct 7th of november if my memory serves me well so how about your trading life i mean that's that's a question that, that i would like to ask you mike is uh you know, we're, we're speaking about trend following, Niels, you and I and Jerry, all trend following traders. How do you go about your personal trading if this is something that you can share or would like to speak about? Do you trade in a trend following way? How has that journey been for you? How have you evolved? How, how do you do it? The primary way that I take advantage of trend following is through all these brilliant names that we all know and love. And that doesn't take much thinking, really. I mean, you have to decide who you're going to be with and how, what instrument you're going to participate in. But that's the easiest way that I know how, at least in the way that I like to live right now. Because, look, I like being a one-man guy. I mean, Dunn Capital is not a one-man guy. That's a full show. But I, I, enjoy, I enjoy the process of trusting so many of the smart people with my money. It's that simple. And it's quite interesting you say that, Mike, and I and I, I love that answer really because I think a lot of people always feel, even though that the information is out there, I mean, you obviously put out a lot of the information uh, yourself, but uh, there is a lot of information about how to do trend following and Morris and I try to answer a lot of these questions uh, every week, but it doesn't mean that the DIY way is always uh, the better way it can be a lifestyle uh, issue to say it's actually better for me to allocate to 
you know, a handful of managers instead. Or there could be other reasons why. It could be account size where you can get bigger diversification if you go with a fund rather than trying to do it yourself. So I think I think that's interesting to to hear. And I think it's refreshing for people to, to, to see that you don't have to do it yourself if you don't want to spend a big part of your spare time developing these strategies. There are other options. Look, I've done it both ways. And obviously, I help people on the DIY all the time. People want yeah. information. So many people just want to know the basics. They want to know how can I get from point A to point B. And I always give people the, the variety of answers of how you can approach this. And I know from experience in answering emails, a lot of people will give me the exact same answer. They'll be like, hey, I saw your book, and I don't want to do this myself, or mm-hmm. I don't have time, or I want to trust a Jerry Parker. Yeah. There's so many varieties of approaches. Definitely, definitely. I've got another question coming in that came in uh, from uh, Said. He asked uh, that he would like to know from, from you, Mike. He says, hi, I would like to ask the question, which market sectors are generally observed to have longer-term trends and are any markets that you trade either long-only or short-only? Of course, you've kind of answered that already because of fundamental reasons. So give whatever views you have on these things. Mike Said definitely would like to know that. You know, just being an observer like everybody else, and you can look at the data going back decades, is there one particular market or group of markets that we can all say beyond a shadow of a doubt is going to be the winner for that year. I don't know that I can give that information away that I can say there's that one thing. I mean, we can all look at the last handful of years and say, should any of us been doing anything except the fangs, the tech stocks? I mean, right? There's So mm-hmm. I think it's it's really difficult. It's kind of a prediction question. It's kind of a question wrapped around, give me a prediction which is tough because I think you can go back every year, probably in the last 50 years, and find a surprise that happened in terms of, I mean, look at you at done. I mean, you guys don't know what's going to happen at the beginning of the year. You might say to yourself, well, you know, historically, currencies have done really, really well for trend following. But you don't know what's going to happen at the beginning of the year. You have no idea. Absolutely. And I think that's, I think that's one of the hardest concepts that people struggle with understanding fully or or, or, or kind of uh, internalizing fully the, the, the good old phrase, you know, knowing what you don't know, right? That Larry Hyde coined. So that really we have no idea what's going to happen. So we want to treat everything equal. Now, that being said, and this is something that was interesting because a couple of weeks ago, we had Perry Kaufman on the, uh, on the, on the podcast and and he develops systems, he trades himself, et cetera, et cetera. He's written, you know, a ton of books on the topic. And he was much more, which surprised me a lot, actually. He was much more about, no, I want to trade the best markets, meaning I will continue to optimize or identify which markets are doing best in, say, over the last six months, which is, as you say, very different to how we approach it at Don, where we just want to treat everything equal. So that caused a little bit of a debate, I would say, in the, in the feedback, in, in the comment section about, you know, so what is best? Uh, I have a feeling where you're leaning towards, but uh, do you come across a lot of other people who, who try and identify, quote unquote, the better opportunities or better markets? Before we started talking today, I jotted down just a quick note. I was thinking, and I don't think I've ever phrased it this way to myself. I was thinking, what are the five strategies out there right now? For trading the markets. So I said, number one, trend following. Number two, buy and hold. Number three, high frequency. Number four, gambling. And number five, bullshit. That's kind of my answer. Mm. You know, there's no secrets to all this stuff. I mean, everybody can look at it and say, okay, I can see what, using Dunn as a great example, I can see what the guys done have done for decades and decades and decades. And somebody else can say, well, let's, let's look at a different grouping of markets. Let's bring the time frame down. And I, it's never ending, right? It's how does one want to slice it? You know, is, is somebody trying to build a business or a track record to appeal to institutional money? Or are they trying to be, and this is what I thought was so fascinating with Jack's newest book, are they trying to be a one-man show to just avoid all of that and make a bloody fortune? I mean, the, the people that Jack found that have made a bloody fortune by themselves, literally one man shows, 
you know, you say to yourself, well, gosh, there's a little bit of luck involved, there's a little bit of black swan involved, but they still have to do it. And it's some crazy one-man stories. I think that's fascinating. I can't wait to uh, to talk to to Jack about these things because I actually think that in particular things like regulation and, and changes on that side has really made people rethink what kind of manager or investor they really want. So that sounds interesting. Think, what do you guys think about the landscape right now? Here we are in 2020. What's the landscape? I just read the most recent Howard Marks memo. <laughs> and, you know, a guy like Howard who's made himself a, a fantastic amount of money and he's just... He's just making a case for there couldn't be any more of an uncertain time than right now, which if you have a trend following mindset, that's music to your ears. Exactly. That's music to our ears. I mean, it's always uncertain. You know, I have the feeling that, you know, there's always a tendency to say this is, oh, you know, here's here's like CNN saying investing in uncertain times. Well, well, when is it never uncertain? Right. I mean, okay, there is an election coming up in two weeks time. Nobody knows what's going to happen exactly at that point. We'll be surprised, right? Maybe there's something happening again with with COVID, you know, COVID getting worse and no lockdowns and interest rates being zero or going negative. There's all that stuff going on. And, you know, we'll just find ways or our systems will find ways to react appropriately to these developments, right? Which is, you know, if, if you on the basis of it, this is why we like trend following. But I just wanted to come back to this point real quick about the one-man shows, which I find fascinating. I have a lot of respect for that. And as you know, I run an institutional money management firm inside the Munich Re Group. And this is regulated like to the T by BaFin here in, in Germany. And so in this day and age, this means you have a COO, you have a risk officer, you have a compliance officer, you have this, that, and the other thing. You have like IT controls, reporting requirements, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Before you know it, before you have the first euro or the first US dollar in assets under management, you are up to five, six, seven people just as kind of like staff to run the operation. They're all on the payroll. They don't come for, for cheap. They definitely don't come for free. And then you need to go out and raise assets, right? In an environment where fees are compressing. I mean, let's not kid ourselves. We all know that. Nobody's getting two and 24 trend following. And so when you when you step back and you just look at the economics of that business, you you know may and I guess for the right reason stand there, scratching your head and saying, is this still the thing that I want to do from a business point of view? Right? I mean, I have my heart in that. I don't want to do anything else. I'm you know I'm 100 trading and trend following and systems and all that stuff. So. I have my energy and my passion for that. I don't want to move into fintech. I don't want to move into, you know, IT startup. But if you're like out there as a say, you know, younger adult and you're making your bets and your choices, like where am I going? Am I going left or right? Am I going trading or tech or, you know, any of that? I'd say, you know, there's probably better choices, better options than the investment management slash hedge fund business, unless you have something that is super, super alpha. But if you have something that is super, super alpha, then why sell that to anybody else for a fee? If it's so good, then, you know, you should be one of those unsung market heroes in, in Jack's book. I, I really see it split up that way. It's an interesting point, especially for the regulation point, because here you guys asked me at the very beginning, so Mike, tell us about your trading. Tell us about how much money you've made. And then you're going to get some responses probably on Twitter. Like, well, Mike's answer sounded evasive. And then Moritz comes on and says, we've got regulatory strangleholds on us up the wazoo. Gee, I wonder why Mike is cautious with his answer. You know, it's it's a really interesting question that you post, Mike. And I have a lot of mixed emotions uh, about, you know, what's happening right now in, in our industry. I was actually this morning... I found an old episode. I'm sure you know him as well. He has a huge podcast called Naval. Mm. And he has an old podcast because he posed a question on Twitter a few years ago, something like, how can you get wealthy without being lucky? And I actually truly believe that trend following is one of those ways. But he wasn't talking about trend following, of course. He wasn't talking about, uh, well, but what he, he was talking about, a lot of the reasons why you might want to be wealthy, but not wealthy necessarily, meaning money in the bank, et cetera, et cetera. One of the things was like, you know, you don't have to go to an office wearing a suit every day and things like that. There's a lot of freedom and so on and so forth. 
and of course, we all know a lot of the pioneers in 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 the industry and and how they did something extraordinary with very little technology. They built some really amazing, extraordinary track records, which are really unrivaled by most other investment strategies even to this day. But I do fear that some of these people and strategies and firms are coming under enormous pressure at the moment as is trend following as a strategy. As much as the three of us truly fundamentally believe that this will continue to work, there are so many people nowadays that will question the strategy. Now, if history is any guide, and certainly my 31 years in this industry uh, has taught me that the the louder that choir becomes, the next big opportunities in trend following are just around the corner. And I truly believe that. I think we're about to see um, a stretch of really strong um, performance uh, opportunities um, as the world kind of implodes in one way or the other. But I will say there is definitely a risk for the industry to change dramatically, as it really has done in the last few years. And maybe this is somewhat personified by the fact that David Harding, (laughs) whatever it was, came out a year ago or two years ago, whenever it was, saying, yeah, yeah, trend following is overcrowded. I don't really want to do it as much as I used to do. Um, I'm going to do all this other stuff. And I think a lot of people said, yeah, if Harding is saying that, it's definitely must be true. It's an interesting point. You know, I was you, you stole my thunder in terms of my idea. I was definitely going to rattle David's name off. He's one of my favorite people. He's given me so much time sure. over the years. And obviously, he's one of the fantastic, legendary success stories. But, you know, I can think back to the mid-90s and I was investigating and trying to understand who was doing this trend following. And, you know, you were looking at really accomplished traders back in the day who had 50 million under management or 100 million or 500 million. There was a handful over a billion. So when David takes his fund to 30 billion entirely on a trend following track record, well, yeah, in some ways you have to scratch your head and say, what kind of possible distortions could have come from that? That's not to take anything away from David's success, but you have to look at that. You know, all of a sudden, you know, maybe maybe the crazy guy that was writing the trend following books got it a little too popular, but a lot of a lot of money all of a sudden said, "Man, we need a we need a piece of this trend following." And David was the arguably most accomplished one ready at the table to accept those funds. And he did a great job of that. But was it too big? Well, it seems to be that he even said that. Yeah, no, no, sure. And so I think the, what I guess what I was trying to say also is, I just think that our industry will change and we may well see some people saying, like we've seen in other strategies, no, actually, I don't want to really do it for a large crowd of, of, of external investors. I'll just do it at a, at a smaller scale and I'll probably have better returns or we'll just maybe, and this is one thing that I've always felt that our industry was not very good at, and that is to respect capacity. I think this strive for being big and, and, and all of that just overshadows what it really should be about, and that is serving our clients and producing the best possible returns we can. But unfortunately, I mean, economics gets into the picture, and, and we all know that management fee income is, is pretty nice, especially if you're doing it at 10, 20, 30 billion. So anyways, um, it's a very interesting uh, topic. Mark, do you want to go on with a few questions? Otherwise, I've got um, other questions lined up from external sources, and I have my whole own list. No, no, sure. I mean, happy to uh, to hear about that list, Niels. But you know, Mike, do you think that trend following is overcrowded? I mean, is that a concern to you? Do, do you think there's a way to really appropriately measure that? No, there's no way to know because, and back to Jack's newest book. Jack's newest book shows that. There are things around this planet, there are people around this planet, perhaps funds around this planet, that don't want anybody to know who the blank they are. And you could guarantee they're out there. So while back in the day, I'm sure, I'm sure a lot of people wanted to get the recognition, right? And they wanted to kind of like bring trend following to the forefront. And some of my books helped to do this. But I'm sure a lot of people now are saying, well, hold on, do we need the attention? Do we need the attention? Do we want the attention? Now, there's no way to to prove that hypothesis, but one would have to be crazy to think that's not true. 
True. So I've got my own line of questions, but before I do that, I actually got a, some questions from uh, a colleague of mine that when he heard that you were coming on the show. So I just want to run through uh, some of them. So one of these just trend following is mediocre to poor performance over the last 10 years. Is that anomaly or new normal in your view? Gosh, doesn't it depend on who we're talking about exactly, what they're doing exactly? I mean, back in the day, back in the day, you could really look at a lot of traders, and a lot of those traders are no longer around. People have either retired or died. Gosh, I'm sure you've talked about this with Jerry. I mean, a lot of a lot of the turtle traders, very young, have passed on. Yeah. So it, it's a it's it's really tricky. I mean, how the how the heck it's it's uh, I don't know if I have a good that's answer. Fine. For no worries. No, no, that's fine. Another question that came in was uh, just kind of your thoughts on pure trend versus the more multi-strat type trend following that we have seen coming on stream? That's kind of like a 20-year question. And what I mean by that is, if we look back to the end of the dot-com bubble until now, we're all old enough to think, gosh, that 20 years went by so fast. And I think what's so interesting that that 20 years is the the interest rate movement and the two or three bubbles and bursts that happen in it. And so it's, it's an interesting time in the sense that are we at a point in time where we can really know who's the winner? Will it be all of these multi-strats that are trying to carve their piece of trend following from the trend? Or will it be some of the tried and true mindsets, you know, a great guy like Paul Mulvaney that sticks to his knitting? It's kind of hard to know, isn't it? Yeah, no, absolutely. Because it sure. feels like this 20-year thing that we're in that started with the end of the dot-com bubble, it feels like, at least this is me, it feels like that there hasn't been a final something yet. Maybe there never will be, but it's just kind of one of those feelings where it's like, I think if you, if you look at trend volume for the last 20, 30 years, sometimes it's like, I can think back to... 2002, or even the end of the dot-com bubble, kind of like, you know, at the end of the dot-com bubble, a lot of people are like, oh, trend following is dead, trend following is not going to work. Then 2002 happened, and, you know, a lot of that was kind of the start of perhaps people believing in what David Harding was doing when he got started. So it's tricky to know. Yeah. It's funny you mentioned the whole dot-com bubble. I actually put out something to uh, my clients today where I was just looking at the fact that this is going off script here for a second, but but uh, it's quite interesting because the 1999 period looks very similar to what's happening right now in the market, meaning that we have equities at an almost all-time high, certainly in, in many indices. But at the same time, we have this elevated VIX at the moment. That happens very rarely for the most part when you have markets at all-time high. The VIX trades, you know, 20 or below. At the moment, it's kind of sitting persistently, uh, you know, at 30 or above. And people may forget that actually when Lehman Brothers um, you know, blew up and that was a big event. The VIX only went to 31. So, I mean, so this is actually a pretty high level. Um, so anyway, that's just a sidetrack. And it's just an, ob- you're just making an observation too. Yeah. You're not, you're not making a prediction, which I think a lot of people no. get confused with. They will, they'll be thinking, oh, you know, uh, Niels is trying to tell me this is going to happen. No, you're just making an observation. Exactly. That's right. Speaking of observations, um, again, one of my colleagues asked uh, for your observation and view of institutional investors understanding of, but also acceptance and need for trend following. How has this changed in your view in, in the last 20 years since you became a, a large advocate for, for this? This is an interesting question, and you're probably not going to expect this answer. I don't like institutional investors that are primarily associated with pension funds in the States, and I'm talking about the government variety. I've had a chance in the last 15 years to be around the types of people that generally are government employees doing the allocation of the teachers and the firemen and all that kind of stuff. And I find these people are generally, they're not like you two guys. They're not really, I mean, maybe to some degree, but they usually don't have the professional standards that I would like to see. And so to me, I really, I I get disgusted when I watch what happens with pension funds, because honestly, most of these teachers and firemen and all that kind of stuff they should just be in an index fund. They shouldn't have all these cowboys that work for the government that really don't know what they're doing. And they kind of just like to hobnob with all the traders and all that kind of fun stuff. They shouldn't be in charge of, uh, of all these uh, 
pension funds. Now, whether these pension funds should exist, because the only pension funds that exist in America these days are public ones. I don't know that there are really private pension funds anymore in America. So I'm not a big fan. I'm not a big fan at all. I don't know if you were expecting that answer. <laughs> no, 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 no. And, and, and actually, I still don't, I mean, I don't think that they are big fans of trend following either, really. I know that some of them have allocations to it. And of course, we know Calcis, because it's been very public about it, has probably got the most exposure to this. And, and I thought what, that the way they structured it as a risk mitigation bucket has seemed to have worked pretty well for them. But you're, you're right. I mean, there's, there's, there's a lot of uh, interesting reasons and and things happening are probably <laughs> behind the curtain, so to speak. Generally, I've met people associated with the pension funds and whatnot, making these allocations for all these employees. I've met some of the least impressive people I've ever met in my life. And mm-hmm. they're responsible for allocating billions of dollars. Yeah. Now, March, do you want to jump in with a couple of questions? Because after this, I've got a block of questions that I want to go through with Mike. Um, it as is a little bit of a yeah, maybe not a question, and, and you know, tooting into the same horn. But with those pension funds, and I've met quite a few in my life as well. They also tend to work with consultants. So there's like this, you know, person A running a large pension fund, and then you know, working with consultant. Be to advise them on, you know, what hedge fund they should be using. And, you know, I just, all the allocations that I've seen and the way that they've worked, I didn't really find them compelling to say the very least, right? And now what's really frightening is that because the deficit of these pension funds has become so large and the return expectation needs to be something like, you know, seven or 8% a year, well, you don't get that on T-bills, right? You, You get that on nothing really. So they're now adding leverage allocating more to equities or private equity even, right, in order to meet their return targets. And I just think that that is a disaster that's, you know, just going to happen at some point. It's going to hit the wall. Let me give a fundamental piece of information to kind of go along with that. I grew up in the Washington, D.C. area. Six of the 10 wealthiest counties, median income, surround Washington, D.C. It's just federal employees. And they've got a sweet gig. They've got sweet pensions. They all buy $1.5 million McMansions, and that's the gig. Now, the funny thing is, is the rest of America doesn't really know about this. The rest of America does I mean, private citizens in America, if they don't work for the government, pension doesn't exist. At some point in time, at some point in time, as you mentioned with the 7%, you gotta, you gotta think that the rubber might meet the road. Again, not a prediction, but just an observation Because at some point also, if the average American finally understands that they wake up every day and they go to work, they don't get a pension, they don't get anything from their private employee or if they're they're an entrepreneur, they 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 have to set aside their own money. But if they realize that their tax dollars are going to their neighbor who works for the government, who has a pension, and it's all being put together by, in some instances, literally a Ponzi scheme mindset, oof. Let's wait and see. Yeah. All right. So, as I said uh, earlier on, uh, I'm gonna have a, I'm gonna play the role of a, of the skeptical for the next few minutes um, because we get these questions. I'm sure you do as well, Mike. But. I mean, as participants in this industry, we get a lot of the same questions and arguments as to why trend following is quote-unquote dead. So I wanted to go through a few of them with you and just hear your perspective of this. Now, the first one has we've already talked about. People often say that trend following is overcrowded and that's why David Harding reduced it and all that. We've, we've been there, done that. But the next one we often hear is that QE has killed trend following what, uh, what do you think when you hear that? Well, that kind of gets back to my 20-year window of looking back to the dot-com bubble. I mean, we all know what happened after the dot-com bubble. Fall of 2002, you know, NASDAQ was down 77%. And everyone's seen the big short. So everyone knows what, what you know, brought us up to the fall of 08. And, you know, we have the fall of 08. Then everyone knows what happened in March of 09. March of 09 was a bunch of hanky-panky behind the scenes. We also know that what happened in the fall of 08, if it didn't happen, Morgan Stanley and Goldman Sachs would not exist today. Probably other companies as well. So it's a big question. Did, did QE kill trend following? I don't think there's any evidence for that. 
I think there's just evidence for the fact that we have QE. Yeah, true. Now, another thing that people would say when they look at our returns and um, trying to find things that they don't like about it, they're often going to cite and say, yeah, but in the last 20 years, it's all down to the bonds and that's not going to repeat itself going forward. We're going to, you know, at some point get off the zero bound, so to speak. How do you think about that being that it's been kind of a one-sided trend in trend following? Well, we're just talking about one market. Let me uh, give a little bit of a shout out to your associate who's not on the call, Jerry, Jerry Parker. Sure. J Jerry has been talking trend following in equities for how long? A long bloody time. When I was first doing my trend following book, he was the guy that I was like literally looking to in terms of some of his quotations. He's one of the few guys that was addressing trend following with stocks. So, okay, if, if we don't have a particular group of markets that are not moving, something else is. I mean, that's the whole point of the whole damn thing, isn't it? Right? You Absolutely. can't wake up at the beginning of the year. You don't know what's going to happen. I mean, we can sit here and have these if-then conversations. Okay, bonds are not moving. Well, how many of these tech stocks have moved? Yeah, no, absolutely. Yeah, I mean, that's the whole that's the whole point of this thing is that trend following is not trying to tell you what's going to happen with bonds. You know, and you and I, when we do this retrospective and we look back twenty years, I'm not trying to say because what's happened in the last twenty years means X Y Z is going to happen in the future. We have no earthly idea. Yeah. So another thing that people will bring up uh, when it comes to trend following specifically in, uh, is that nowadays it seems like a lot of the markets have become very interconnected, so to speak, and therefore they end up moving very fast, like we saw in February 18, like we've seen this year uh, in both directions, and that trend followers can't really capture those moves um, because they have probably become maybe a little bit too slow. How do you... How do you think about that? So speed, I guess. The name of the game is however one wants to do their particular trend following, they have to survive. So we all have to stay alive. We have to have enough capital to play any kind of game. And if we don't know what's going to happen, and then you know, we can't we can't predict anything, this is really a philosophical question. Like, what does one want to do? Because the other side of the, 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 that, what that question is really saying is. Trend following is a waste of my time. I would just rather trust the passive index. So it's ultimately a personal question. One has to say to themselves, looking at this, these, this decade window, multi-decade window that we're talking about, one has to say to themselves, do, do I want to just trust the system? Maybe that will work. Maybe, maybe just trusting the index will be absolutely better than trend following. Just an equity index, no fees, passive. Maybe that's the way to go. Mm. One has to say to themselves, do I believe that? Do I want to trust that? Do I want to put my nut on that bet? That's ultimately what going the trend following is all about. And, you know, look, one can get into the nitty gritty as you're talking about it and say, well, you know, there's, what's, what's, what's happening right now at this moment in time on this particular market at this particular time frame? It's still really just a bet of how does one look at the world? Do you trust? the governments and the Fed to take care of you? Or do you not? That's it. Yeah. Something that just came to my mind, which is slightly different to what I thought I was going to be asking you about, but it, but it's kind of interesting, maybe also hear your views on, on this more. I know we've talked about it a little bit before, and that is, um, so over the summer, there was this um, uh, panel, virtual panel, with four of the largest allocators to, to trend-following strategies, um, some of them based in Switzerland, Ireland, Sweden and in the US. So people who are well known in, in, in our industry. And um, and one of them was saying, but I think they were all nodding, um, saying that during the COVID crisis, so back in February and March, and these firms, I, I imagine they would invest with mainly the bigger managers, right? Four of them, so one of these investors had four managers, four trend followers who all overrode their system. Now, in this case, they said, oh, they only did it to reduce risk. But it was kind of surprising. I don't know if you heard that. And what How are they still trend followers? Well, ex well, yeah. 
I mean, tell me right, more. right. If you're if you're just if you're if you're if you're at the joystick and you're just kind of like you know if you're just kind of jerking the plane around when you're on autopilot, you know, following your system, and then you start jerking the plane around because a bird flew by. And I'm, I'm obviously COVID was a little bit more than a bird flying by, sure. uh, but still, right? What's the point? Yeah, yeah. It's kind of funny. I was um, I was revisiting um, something that um, definitely has kind of slipped my mind. Um, um, when I think back on on the conversation I had with Richard Dennis a while back, and we always always focus on some of his slogans, you know, the trend is your friend and the, the rules best. are your guardian angel and all of that stuff, right? Yeah. But one of the things he also said, and I only noticed that by looking at, at the, the transcript for some reason, and that is he said something that one of the most important things is really the persistence. The fact that when you're systematic, it's the persistence that it gives you that is so crucial and i don't hear many people talking about persistence in in it but but now that i see it again and 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 hearing about you know these people overriding their systems and all of that i think it's such an overlooked attribute to trend following persistence can i give him a shout out sure i have to give him a shout out so many people when they get into not not everyone of course a lot of people see the bigger picture but a lot of people get into the turtle story and then they get into the Rich Dennis story. And then they go find some article from the 80s, some article from the 90s, and then I get an, e- and then I get an email. The email says, oh, but Rich Dennis blew up. And you know, you really got to dig a little bit deeper. Because <laughs> if Rich Dennis had this all wrong, right, Jerry Parker would not be here today. I mean, you know, and Jerry gives all the, I mean, obviously Jerry's had a long career and Jerry's a brilliant guy and he's done exceptional but that's where you got to start from. So I think people really need to look at the totality of a rich Dennis. You know, he put all of this stuff, I mean, he's one of the, one of the, obviously the pioneers in Trinvon, but he put it all in motion starting such a long time ago. And then to give away to essentially strangers, here's mm-hmm. how you do it. And so now if, if we do an autopsy of rich Dennis in the past, okay, somebody can say, well, you know, way back in the day, on a couple occasions, he made decisions with his funds, his public funds, that were not great, or his investors were not prepared for the risk. That's an entirely different conversation as to whether or not he was a brilliant guy with a brilliant trend-following foundation who trained brilliant traders. And people really need to separate those two things. Yeah, no, I agree with that. Uh, thanks for bringing that up. And also, um, if people want to go and listen to uh, the conversation I had with uh, Richard Dennis and Jerry was on that as well, and and one other turtle, you can find that in the um, archives for sure. Final question I had in in my list of the things that people often use kind of as a as a um, evidence of um, of trend following um, not working anymore is that they. They gravitate towards strategies like AI, machine learning, big data, not just using simple open, high, low, close. What are your what are, what are your thoughts when when you hear people uh, talk like that? Well, I sure as heck can't give a better thought than you and Kirk. <laughs> and you know, look, AI is just something that someone coded, right? And I remember having the conversation with you and everything in his office is coded and whatnot. And he's obviously got a big trend following foundation. But I think sometimes everyone has to stop a little bit with some of the, uh, well, it's AI, it's secret. You know, it used to be, it's neural nets, it's secret. I mean, look, okay, Jim Simons exists, and he's doing something exceptional somewhere on Long Island that no one's really sure of, probably uh, maybe at the speed of light, maybe not. But I did find in that Jim Simons book, you know, one of the master quants one of the guys probably at high frequency, the guy that's perhaps, quote, AI, you go and you look at his, that book that Zuckerman put out last year and where does Jim Simons cite his influence? Where was a significant amount of his money? Where did it come from early on? And perhaps still to this day, mm-hmm. inspired by Rich Dennis and starting with trend following. It's, it's always fascinating to peer behind the curtain and see how things work, huh? Completely agree. And just to finish the story about these four people or allocators uh, on that panel, then the they went on to say that the only manager they had to shut down during COVID was an AI manager because clearly the fund hadn't learned about this kind of volatility, which I thought was quite funny. 
anyways. Um, you, you have to learn about volatility that's happening with a pandemic that's never a global pandemic that has not happened in modern times. Right. And they think there's a there's a way that somehow or another an AI algorithm can figure that out in a real time basis and make decisions. Sure. There's yeah. a whole philosophical foundation problem there. Definitely. Mortz, what's on your mind uh, as we um, work through? Yeah, on, on, on the topic of changing your systems and making alterations or shutting it down and, you know, doing things differently because the bird has flown by, as Mike has said so nicely. Um, you know, I think, and I've said this before, a lot of the alpha, a lot of the success that is linked to trend following is really in the persistence and in the waiting, right? If you are not in a position to hang on to that thing for four, five, six, maybe seven years in an unchanged fashion, then it could very likely be that you're not producing a positive result, right? So a lot of the success, the success factor is to give it the time. And reason being is, I mean, most of the trend following, the pure trend following systems, right? They have a sharp ratio of about 0.5. And mathematically, I know this assumes, you know, a normally distributed world, yada, yada, which isn't true. But mathematically, the, the waiting time that you have to wait for you to make money with confidence is one over the sharp ratio squared. So that's one over 0.5 squares, 0.25. So it's four years for a normal trend following program, right? So you have to be, you have to give it at least that amount of time before you can allow any sort of judgments as to as its effectiveness, et cetera. So if you're, if you're switching things around because of COVID, then you've essentially changed the system at that point in time. And the clock starts again. Here goes another four years. And I just think that's wrong. You know, there, there may be things where, you know, you, you make, you have a kill switch or something like that because you think markets will become closed and you cannot get out of your positions. I, yeah, I, I get some of that stuff, but that wasn't COVID. COVID was just, you know, markets going down, volatility going up, the setting has changed, but that's it. It's a great explanation. And how many people truly understand the nuance of what you're saying and the sense that, once you have these trend-following traders that these institutional players have allocated to, and then in the middle of chaos, and everyone listening has the ability to go look at track records and look at performance data and find out that chaos or big events has often been a great thing for trend-following, as it was in March of 2020. So if you're in March of 2020 and you are a trend-following trader and you pull the joystick back or you start you know, hitting the fire button or something, you start doing something a little bit wild. What what's what do you have now? What is that now? What is it? It's not trend following, but it won't show up anywhere. Where does that show up that it's no longer trend following? The market, the marketing documents are still going to be, oh, it's trend following, right? You know, the, the public pronouncements are going to still be, oh, it's trend following. It's not trend following. Once that once the joystick starts moving, that's something else. I like these clear um responses and, and answers and, and your thought also, Moritz, uh, on that. And it reminds me of this uh, Alan Greenspan quote that I actually tweeted uh, yesterday where where he said something like, I know you think you understand what you thought I said, but I'm not sure you realize that what you heard is not what I meant. So. When I listen to both of you guys, you guys are on a daily basis involved with the institutional community you know that I'm not on a daily basis. So I try, I try to be an interpreter. I try to, because I know so many guys like you and I know so many regular folks, so I try to be a bridge to kind of take this thinking and this content and kind of you know, bring it down. Because you guys, you, know, you guys need jargon in some sense to communicate complicated ideas quickly with people that know what you're talking about. But sometimes a lot of people, you know, it might fly right by them. I think that's really true. And I think that's actually really the art and what we have to, as an industry, to continue to work on. And that is actually our the way we communicate. The, the narrative of what we do is Im really important in terms of the future of, of trend following, et cetera, et cetera. Speaking of narrative, actually, that reminds me, one of the things or one of the terms that came up probably around 10 years ago, I think it was 2011, um, our mutual friend Katie Kaminsky coined the phrase crisis alpha. And I've been very uh, open about it, saying that I have kind of mixed feelings about it. But um, I wanted to hear your thoughts on that term. And, and of course, we know institutions kind of 
gravitated towards it. How do you think about that? Trend following kind of being labeled as, as kind of a crisis alpha strategy. You know, when I see the phrase trend following and then I see managed futures or some time series or this or that, I think ah, they just did all that stuff because that guy Covell is using the trend following phrase too much. And if they start using the trend following <laughs> phrase too much, it'll send them, <laughs> send them all to his website. Um, look, I still think one of the most interesting things for me going way back in time and I think I've told this story before publicly. I, I can say it here. I think it was quite fun. Was how I figured out when I was still trying to piece things together that John Henry was on the opposite mm-hmm. side of Nick Leeson and the Barings Bank fiasco. And I it was randomly at an event in London. I think there was only five or six people in the room. It was at some conference, like a managed futures association or something. And I believe Leo Malamed was speaking at the, at the lectern. And in front of me were two guys that were the heads of brokerage firms at the time. I want to say Dean Winter and Revco. I'm not sure. Can't remember. I'd have to go find the notes. Anyways, they were kind of elbowing each other and joking amongst each other about who was on the other side of Leeson. Now, I, I thought this was fascinating because I'm like, well, shit, Leeson's on the front cover of Time. You know, it's a zero-sum game. Who was on the opposite side, right? No one's talking about this. It's no, it's, it, where's, it's, it's nowhere to be found. And they, were, they didn't say the name, but I knew enough at the time. They said it was a, a, somebody, a director, board of directors on the uh, Futures Industry Association. And there was like literally only one trader on there. And like, you know, you put two and two together and you realize, well, gosh, John Henry's out there getting a lot of publicity about how much money he's made in early 1995. And so for me, that was a fascinating thing. It was actually Jerry Parker who confirmed that to me uh, many years ago. But for me, seeing that and then seeing additional events, for example, long-term capital management or the ending of the dot-com crisis or 2008. So, you know, Kathy's great interview and all that kind of stuff. It's just big events. So right. I, I don't know all of the, you guys have probably looked at even more in depth, the stats. But for me, you can look clearly in the last 30, 40 years that when some of these big events have happened, trend following has done exceptionally well. And for the classic trend following trader that actually was not looking at the bird out the window flying by, March of 2020 was yet another one of these events. So whether we call it this particular crisis alpha or whether we call it a black swan or whether we call it, you know, a big event, am I wrong to conclude that when the rest of the world is going to hell in a handbasket, trend following historically has done exceptionally well? Is that a wrong way to think? Yeah, no, I mean, I think this is uh, this is why um, it's, an, it's an interesting topic to discuss. And I think also maybe, um, you know, Katie has changed her uh, the way she talks about it a little bit, because suddenly everybody thought that a crisis is can be a two-week event or it can be an 18-month event. But I think what you're saying is big events, and of course, with different timeframes, is, is a good way of, of thinking about it. It's funny, I mean, you you bring up Nick Leeson. I don't know, I think you might have had him on your podcast. We had him on our podcast. He's quite a, it's quite an interesting story when you hear him tell what really happened, because it's not exactly as, the popular press um, put it out there. So again, if people want to go back and listen to Moritz and me speaking with Nick Leeson, they can find it in, in the archives. And another thing you brought up is, is, of course, John Henry, a legend in our industry, but also someone who took his skills. And when we spoke with Mark, who was the CEO at John Henry a little while ago, and we asked him, so what is really the secret to John Henry? He said it was just his incredible way of being able to focus on just one thing. And so he did it in his trend-following business. And now, of course, we've seen it in baseball and we've seen it in European soccer. And that seems to be um, doing pretty well for him as well. I think one of the things that's hard, too, with trend-following or any performance track record is people, people want to see something that's eternal. They want to see it go on forever. And if, it, if it's not a straight line, for example, if, I mean... You know, with Dunn Capital, what's one of the most amazing track records around? I mean, literally. Uh, but I think people sometimes have a hard time piecing things together. So they'll 
they'll look at a story about John Henry and they'll say, well, he did this for 20 or 30 years and now he's doing uh, the sports teams. And and they somehow or another think that's a negative, right? Right. Whereas for those that know, the only reason he bought the sports teams is because he had a few extra dollars that he somehow or another accumulated from a trading strategy that was called trend following. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. We want to be respectful of your time. We know it's um, Saturday evening where where you are, Moritz. So uh, what's uh, what's on your mind as we start to slowly wind down our conversation with Mike? Uh, not that much anymore. I think that's been uh, very broad ranging. Thank you, Michael. I really enjoyed that. I don't have any more questions. Nope. I still want to bring up something because I want to keep people uh, listening to the to the very last point. So there will be some uh, more coming up after this. But as normally, we always go through and see what's performance like in the various indices that we track. So let me just quickly run through that at the end of Thursday evening. I think Friday, by the way, was a good day for for trend followers and systematic traders. But anyways, the Beta 50 index was up 1.19% for October so far, down a quarter percent for the year. Sokgen CTA index up one and a quarter for the month so far, but still down 2% or so for the year. Trend index coming back up almost 2% for the month and pretty much flat for the year now. The short-term traders index uh, giving back about 70 basis points so far this month, but still up 1.5% for the year. Now, the Sokgen multi-alternative risk premium index, as it's called, is down 1.23% for the month and down 14% for the year. And then, of course, stocks, um, the uh, MSCI World up 2.67% this month so far, up 3% for the year, and bonds did so far lose a bit of money, about quarter percent. Now, one of the things, Mike, that I wanted to ask you about, I also want to ask uh, Mort about this, something we started only last week, and that is to come up with kind of the best podcast episode we've all listened to in the last week or so. I'm sure you listen to uh, to podcasts in your spare time. So is there a podcast episode out there that you uh, enjoyed this week in particular that stands out? And you just asked a guy who's recorded over 900 podcast episodes <laughs> about what, what he's listening to. No, look, the, the best one that I would say that I have heard, I happen to have been the person asking the questions, but the oh. best one that I've heard in the last, I might say one of my top five, to be honest with you, the top five in eight years guy named Robert Rosenberg, and he was the CEO of Dunkin' Donuts for 35 years. Started, started His father made him president at age 25, and the business was relatively small. And then that 35 years, Robert took it through IPO, leveraged buyout, who knows? I mean, all gr- fantastic story. I don't recall the name of the book off the top of my head. It's an awesome book. I see a lot of Doing a podcast, I see a lot of bad books where I see a lot of kind of like one-sentence idea books. This book by uh, Robert Rosenberg, fantastic. It's, it reminds me of all those late 80s, early 90s books like Predator's Ball and Barbarians at the Gate, that level of detail, and you're just kind of hooked. You're like, wow, I had no idea this was all going on with Dunkin' Donuts. That was, that was fabulous for me. I love that. Very cool. What about you, Moritz? What's uh, caught your uh, attention uh, and liking this week? I only think I listened to one or two podcasts uh, this week. The one I remember and the one I really enjoyed, and I enjoy all of the podcasts, I must say, with Mike Green on the show. Mike Green from Logica uh, with with Wayne Himmelstein. By the way, we both had them on the both of them we had on the podcast, and he was on the Investors Podcast with Preston, who we also had on the podcast. <laughs> sure. And I, you know, I just found that fascinating because, you know, Mike brings such a detailed perspective to passive investing flows and how they may impact prices going forward. You may not believe that. You may believe that. It doesn't really matter. But just hearing him out and, you know, respecting that opinion and his viewpoint is, I think, very valuable. So I recommend listening to that. Okay, cool. I'm going to go with a non, uh, well, I say non-financial podcast. It was sort of financial, but actually it is uh, one of the latest ones from Tim Ferriss uh, with Naval, who has his own podcast, of course, but he does not go on other people's podcasts, I think, except for Tim's because that's where he made his name. But he's a fascinating character and Tim and him had a pretty good wide-ranging conversation 
So that's going to be my pick of the week. Mike, I also want to ask you whether there's anything you want to bring up. We've been bombarding you with questions, but of course you uh, ask pretty good questions yourself. So anything you want to bring up before we wrap up? Yeah, I think when COVID ends, when COVID ends, if you're living a boring life, if you're stuck somewhere in America and Europe and you haven't done anything interesting for a long bloody time, Go. Just go somewhere. Get out. Go to an entirely different culture where people don't speak your language. And I don't mean just Europe. You guys are all super connected in Europe. Okay. You all speak like six languages. You know where I'm pushing y'all. I'm saying get to Asia. Get to, and not just Singapore. Singapore don't count. That's like uh, America or Europe on steroids. Get to somewhere interesting in Asia Japan, China, Thailand, Malaysia, Vietnam. Really. Life is too short. Too many of us are just kind of chasing, I'm not going to say our tails, but there's a lot of interesting stuff out there. And it can be really really energizing to get out there and break the chains of how we might have all grown up. I think that's a great great way to, to end. And I have a feeling that when we do finally get rid of COVID, or at least get it to a point in time where we can and want to travel again. I think that's exactly what people need to do. Uh, Although I have a suspicion that it might take a little bit longer than uh, what we would like. But anyways, Mike, thanks so much for spending your Saturday evening with us. We really appreciate this, as I'm sure all of our listeners uh, do. And before we end up, uh, make sure that you go and check out Mike's books and podcasts as you should. Lots of great resources there. And by the way, as we talked about last week, if you wouldn't mind, check out the Top Traders uh, YouTube channel. Go and like some of the episodes, subscribe, because we want to make sure that uh, also the YouTube search engine knows that we exist to help other people discover the podcast. And keep your questions coming. You can email them to info at toptradersunplugged.com and we'll do our best to answer them. There's a few ones waiting for next week that came in, but since Mike was on the podcast, we decided to uh, push them a week. So from Moritz and me, thanks so much for listening and we look forward to being back with you next week. In the meantime, stay safe and be well. Thanks for listening to the Systematic Investor Podcast Series. If you enjoy this series, go on over to iTunes and leave an honest rating and review. And be sure to listen to all the other episodes from Top Traders Unplugged. If you have questions about systematic investing, send us an email with the word question in the subject line to info at toptradersunplugged.com and we'll try to get it on the show. And remember, all the discussion that we have about investment performance is about the past, and past performance does not guarantee or even infer anything about future performance. Also understand that there's a significant risk of financial loss with all investment strategies, and you need to request and understand the specific risks from the investment manager about their products before you make investment decisions. Thanks for spending some of your valuable time with us, and we'll see you on the next episode of The Systematic Investor.